Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. Our goal on these SALT Talks is the same as our goal at our SALT conferences, which is to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And we're very excited today to welcome Betsy Z. Cohen to SALT Talks. Uh, Betsy, uh, in short, she builds financial businesses. Uh, after serving as law clerk to the Honorable John Biggs, Chief Judge of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit, she became the second female law professor on the East Coast, teaching antitrust law and government regulation of business at Rutgers University Law School. Using that knowledge capital, before age 30, Betsy had founded a shipping business in Hong Kong, a leasing company in Brazil, and a joint venture with a bank in Spain, and co-founded a Philadelphia law firm that specialized in representing financial institutions and industry clients in complex real estate and financial matters. Uh, Betsy has been very active in the SPAC space of late, which we'll talk about a lot here on this SALT Talk. Uh, but hosting today's talk is Anthony Scaramucci, the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, which is a global alternative investment firm. Anthony's also the chairman of SALT. Uh, and with no further ado, I'll turn it over to Anthony for the interview. John, thank you, Betsy. Welcome to SALT Talks. You've had this uh, legendary career. Uh, so congratulations on all that. Um, I want to start with the brief overview, if you can, for what is known as SPACs, uh, which is an acronym for Special Purpose Acquisition Corporations. Um, in a Squawk on the Street interview on February 3rd, you said SPACs give investors better knowledge of forward potential for companies that are growing very quickly. So it's almost like a, it's a portal, if you will, into the potentiality of growth and investment opportunity. Uh, Again, my opinion, I'm, I'm new to SPAC, so I confess that's why I'm starting at this cursory level. But it does seem like SPACs were born from excess regulation, frankly, because uh, many private companies decided not to go public. The SPAC goes public for them, does all the work, and then they make a decision to sleeve into the SPAC or not. If I'm wrong about that, please correct me. But give us your view of SPACs for viewers that may not be familiar with the SPAC as a structure and or investment vehicle? Well, I agree with many of the things that you just said, Anthony, but not all of them. I don't think the driver was really the excess regulation, although it may have been the pain that was inflicted and the timeline that it created, which is much longer than a SPAC. And you're right that the SPAC sponsor by taking the company public uh, is able to provide to the seller or the private company that is transitioning to the public markets, a method of reaching those markets that's both faster and in some ways easier. Um, the SPAC is really in its basic structure, just a merger. It's the merger of a private company into a public company. Uh, and then uh, the resulting company uh, takes on the characteristics of the private company. Uh, it allows companies that are growing quickly 
to reach investors in a way that's very differentiated from uh, initial public offerings. In, in those offerings, uh, a company will look backward and provide audited financials for what they did. Uh, in a SPAC, a quickly growing company, and we have many areas in which that kind of growth is really uh, possible, uh, whether it be technology or uh, bioscience or some or various other uh, very quickly growing com uh, areas for companies to grow, really has an opportunity and a requirement from the SEC to reflect the merged entities, the public company with its cash and the private company with its business on a forward looking basis. And since we are in a, a moment of time when a couple of vectors are coming together, when companies are growing quickly, uh, when uh, the opportunity for financing of additional growth is really important when institutions and the capital markets are full. Uh, all of these things are coming together to proliferate uh, the number of SPACs. And that's, I think, what we're seeing today. You're, you know, it, it, listen, it's a brilliant exposition. You are a pioneer in so many different things. And so I wanna, I wanna go back a second Tell us a little bit about your career arc. Uh, obviously, John read some of the things that were uh, in your bio, but tell us some things that are perhaps not in your bio or that we couldn't find on a Wikipedia page. How did you get to be this uh, polymath entrepreneur and judicial genius at the same time? How did, how did you manage all of that in one lifetime? Well, I love those uh, uh, characteristics. I'm going to take them with me. Um, <laughs> I had really what very early in my career, uh, what was for me a, a sort of seminal experience. Um, I was a very good student at law school, served on the law review, was recruited during a summertime to a law firm as is traditional uh, to be uh, an intern. And generally at the end of the summer, uh, a law firm would offer its chosen interns um, a job for the following year. But the, the person who hired me said to me, um, my senior partner is not ready to have a woman in the law firm. And with that, I looked at this person, I don't know where I got the nerve, but I looked at the person and said, you know, I think this is your loss. Um, he was a little surprised. But it made it quite clear to me that I was never going to work for anybody else again. Oh, good for you. And so out of that came probably what was already there, uh, a desire to start things on my own, to move them forward, to grow them, and to, uh, to be an innovator in, uh, certainly not in 1966 in, in technology, but in uh, a variety of different ways. You know, it's, it's, a fa it's a fascinating story. I'm gonna regale you with a quick story. I think uh, uh, Darcy will appreciate this. Uh, Mario Gabelli, the legendary investor, I went to see him when I was 30. 
I was at Goldman Sachs, had a pretty good career going. He told me, leave Goldman Sachs. And I was like shocked. I was like, why? He said, well, someday you're going to turn 50 and Goldman Sachs will put you on the dustbin of history there. You know, there's very few people that make it past 50. You'll feel young. And if you have your own business, you'll be able to run it. And I took his advice to heart, Betsy. And so I left at the age of 32 and started my first business and, and never looked back. And so it's an interesting story about being an entrepreneur. So tell us about those tribulations, though, for you getting started. Um, for me, uh, I'm always reminded of what Fred Smith, the founder of FedEx, said about starting FedEx. He said if he knew how hard it was to start FedEx, Betsy, he never would have started FedEx. And I'm, and I'm sure you've had that feeling as an entrepreneur, as, uh, as I have. And so tell us a little bit about that early life as an entrepreneur. The early life of, of an entrepreneur is that you turn out the lights, you sweep the floors, and do everything in between. And to the extent that it's hard, um, that's one of the consequences. But the I think for me at least, um, the adrenaline flow which comes with starting something new offsets all of those hardships. And maybe it's because I've been through it so often. There are eight companies that I started from scratch that I took to the public markets and became, not became, was the CEO. Uh, so I, I really had both the uh, pain and the pleasure. Yeah, and I, I, I have experienced that as well. I want to shift gears to your newest venture or one of the newest ventures, Payoneer. Hopefully I'm pronouncing it right. It's a pay, payment startup. It's agreed to merge with FTAC, Olympus Acquisition Corp. Now, Payoneer is going to receive $300 million dollars from your SPAC investors in a deal that valued the FinTech company at about 3.3 billion. And so uh, tell us about a little bit about that deal, why that deal, and where do you think things are going? Payoneer, uh, when you refer to it as a startup, uh, it's a little bit misleading. Payoneer is a 15 year old company that has been building out its technology uh, for that period of time. It is facilitating and democratizing uh, the access of people, small business people all over the world uh, who are on e-commerce uh, with a, the opportunity to operate as if they were a very large company. So they facilitate payments and uh, tax payments and services even beyond that, that a small business uh, operator really needs, but can't afford to buy on a one-by-one -one basis. And so they've created a network. It's uh, headed by a remarkable uh, leader, Scott Gallat, who has combined both the mission of uh, democratization of, of uh, small businesses uh, with the financial savvy of being able to bring this company to profitability. So it is a, a great story of a 15-year-old company that has layered service upon service upon service, listening to uh, the needs and understanding the needs of 
of small business people on a global basis. We were really delighted to take what was a $750 million um, SPAC, Corpus, $750 million in cash, and raise another $300 million above that to both satisfy the capital needs of the company so that it could at this time when all the tailwinds of for that kind of company are in place, it could go forward vigorously and continue to grow together with looking at the needs of the existing shareholders who uh, many of whom had been shareholders for 10 or 12 or 13 years for some liquidity uh, with uh, for their stock. So it was a, a win-win for sellers, for the marketplace, and for the company. You, you've been described by many people as prescient. You see things, uh, you know, for some reason, you've been able to uh, look around the corner. You founded Jefferson Bank in 1974. You've encountered uh, roadblocks in your career, uh, but you have a touch for these things, Betsy. Why? Uh, what, what is it about your personality? What is it that you're reading? Who are you meeting with? How, how did you uh, develop this skill set? I wish I knew, uh, but I... I can only reflect uh, what members of my family who know me best say, which is that I just don't think like other people. Uh, and I think that perhaps- Are you, are you left-handed? I am. Okay. And so that is my husband and our, and our children. So we think we've brought something to the world. Uh, uh, and maybe it's the left-handedness, but certainly it is the- uh, continuing curiosity uh, and what I think of in, um, in, in uh, Eastern terms as uh, negative space, looking for negative space that have really propelled me through uh, the identification of opportunities. Your your story is also one of resilience. You know, you're you're, uh, you know, I'm, I'm reminded of what Alan Greenspan said in his memoir, uh, the former Federal Reserve Chairman. He said in the 1950s he hired women economists, and and he was once asked, well, why are there so many women on staff? He said, well, they couldn't get jobs elsewhere because there were these patronizing male chauvinists that prevented them from getting jobs, and so it was. It was an opportunity for them and an opportunity for me because I realized how brilliant they were. Uh, but uh, these obstacles for women, particularly women of your era, um, how did you overcome them? We have a lot of young people that are, are listening to our salt talks. And one of the things we want to teach our young people, particularly as a parent, I have five children, how to be resilient, how to overcome naysayers and doubters and doubters on your businesses, doubters on your personhood, if you will. How did you do that, Betsy? And what are some of the tips you could recommend to others? Um, I think that I found my own voice, if I could put it that way, in early in my life. Um, I was not always confident, but I had a sense 
that I could accomplish things. Um, and I, I was very focused in whatever I did uh, on being professional, um, being firm, uh, sometimes to my own detriment, uh, but always had a very strong sense of what was right and wrong. Uh, and finding not everybody is the same and we wouldn't want them to be, but for, I would say women in particular, finding out what it is that makes you tick and communicating that and pursuing that as a goal uh, is I think uh, what is, is very important. Not everyone wants to be an entrepreneur. Not everyone can be an entrepreneur. So I often say to young women who are uh, in looking for jobs in corporations that you must look for a job in a company where the CEO has only girls, not has girls, not has daughters, but has only daughters because the, the transition from uh, really the emotional transition of empathy to uh, women succeeding that can't, takes place in a, in a corporate setting is really, the tone is really set by the CEO. And if that CEO sees success uh, in an absolute sense, uh, being possible with women much like Alan Greenspan, who I think has many, many wonderful qualities, including trumpet playing, uh, is, uh, you know, is clear. Uh, the commitment uh, by a CEO uh, is really critical. I, I often think of uh, Harold Shapiro, who at one time was the president at Princeton University, and he made it his business to uh, promote to provost or dean or one of the important posts within the uh, administration, uh, a number of very talented women. And those women went on to fill the positions of president of many of the Ivy League universities. So it's a process. It takes commitment. You have to find the right spot and you have to continually analyze it and um, uh, identify what is working for you and what's not. Yeah, you know, it, it's a good segue into culture. You're describing a lot of elements of what makes for a successful culture in a business, an entrepreneurial startup, even a large scale corporation. Um, before I turn it over to our resident millennial, who will try to outshine me, Betsy. So I've got to try to come up with a really, I have to come up with a really clever question here before I turn it over to him. But it, it's one about culture. You know, one of my mentors said to me a long time ago at Goldman, that we have the same desks, we have the same telephones, the same ink, the same printer toner. Uh, so what's gonna make our business more competitive or more successful? And my mentor once said to me that it was culture. It was the putting the values in place and the commitment. You clearly had that in spades. So I'm wondering 
How do you identify that in others? And then if you had to describe the recipe for a good corporate culture, entrepreneurial or otherwise, what would it be? Um, I think it's communicating uh, to everyone that there are uh, opportunities uh, within the corporate structure uh, that they have as much responsibility to identify as to be identified. Uh, and that um, the supportiveness of allowing people to make mistakes, of uh, learning together, all of those things are important in terms of uh, creating a culture in which people are going to uh, feel that they're supported in reaching for participation, decision-making, all the rest of the things, because that's where your next group of leaders comes from. So, John, I know you have some questions from um, our audience, and I know you have your own questions. I'm gonna, I'll, I'll turn it over to you, uh, but it is, uh, it's wonderful to have you with us, and I love the story, uh, and I love the fact that you're just getting started. You bet. And I love that about you. And I hope, I hope, I hope that people realize that, that the, the best is yet to come, but go ahead, John. Yeah. I want to start with a, a lighthearted question, sort of, you know, you have the FinTech SPAC line, uh, but you also have the FTAC Olympus, uh, which debuted in August of last year. And you have a, a whole nother family of SPACs with Greek names. You have Athena, you have Hera, is there anything behind the naming convention of these SPACs? Oh, indeed there is. My husband is an internationally known scholar in the field of Greek history. <laughs> and so we've all been embedded with it, uh, imbued with it. Uh, so I think we're very prone to, to uh, the Greek pantheon. Uh, but we thought everybody was doing numbers. We really ought to be doing something else. So uh, I am Athena. There'll be, uh, uh, I'm sure Zeus will not be far behind. <laughs> yeah. So I want to talk about SPACs uh, even more in depth than you and Anthony were already talking about them. So uh, when investors are looking at potential SPACs, uh, what should they be looking for in the team that's put together the SPAC, uh, you know, even prior to identifying the target company? I think they really have to look to the uh, depth of expertise of the sponsors and in fact, their past history, not that their history will predict success necessarily, but at least uh, they have done it before. A SPAC looks easy, but it's very difficult to execute. It has many, many components to it from capital markets to understanding the business to assessing the management uh, and so on and so on. Uh, so really you're looking for someone with whom you can partner because as you go forward in a transaction, uh, the markets change, the companies change, the uh, many things can, can be altered and you really have to be able to work with that partner uh, through the entire transaction. So it's 
that whole range of things, but expertise, knowledge, experience are all part of it. Yeah, my my Uber driver uh, that I had this morning launched a SPAC. So you're saying I shouldn't I shouldn't necessarily go into that one. Well, um, you have to uh, tell me more about your Uber driver. All right. Yeah, I, sh- I shouldn't judge a book by his cover, I guess. Um, but going to the next stage of the process for a SPAC, what do you as management look for in companies that you're taking public? So obviously there's this preponderance of SPACs. I think obviously there's some SPAC targets that maybe aren't quite as ready for public life as others, but what do you look for in terms of characteristics for the targets? We're really looking for a company that is what we call public ready. And that's a combination of characteristics. It's having a a good corporate infrastructure, a well-developed management team, a business that is, uh, has recurring income and has predictability, uh, a growth profile that is perhaps beyond that, uh, which one generally sees in the marketplace. All of these things combined, some in greater amounts and some in lesser, depending upon the situation. And I think uh, a company that has differentiated itself from others in the field. Yeah, that, that's very interesting. In September of 2020, Bloomberg uh, called you the lone wolf of SPACs, uh, a reference to you being one of the only few women that are in the space leading these blank check companies. Uh, and then in, in December, again, writing for Bloomberg, Crystal Say uh, noted that your FinTech Acquisition Corp could be the only SPAC with an all-female board. Uh, in aggregate, SPACs have raised, I think, now more than $20 billion over the last couple of years. Why do you think women are so underrepresented in the SPAC world, and how could you know SPACs and markets in general benefit from greater female representation? I think uh, we, you will see more and more women uh, in the SPAC field. <clears throat> Remember that um, uh, the knowledge that is required of uh, a SPAC sponsor is really uh, multifold. It's really knowing the capital markets, knowing trading, knowing the companies, knowing the field. Uh, all, all of those things are important. And it may be that there are not as many women who have reached that level of multiple skills. Uh, I benefit from my age, uh, you know, uh, as maybe there are men. A lot of the SPACs that are now being uh, offered are being offered by retired CEOs of large companies. Yeah. Uh, If you take a look at the profile, gender profile of uh, large of CEOs of large companies, you know, it's probably going to be a lot like the SPAC market. Yeah, it's a, uh, it's a chicken and egg. You know, you have fewer female executives, so you have fewer that are in the marketplace looking to, you know, raise SPACs. But, but there is a female, uh, or so it's rumored, a female CEO who's now retired, who is going to launch a SPAC. There are lots of women in technology who are readying themselves to uh, launch SPACs. So I think over the next six to nine months, uh, you'll see many, many more 
women coming to the fore. But I have to tell you that my grandchildren call me Grandma Lone Wolf. So. All right. Well, you're going to be a, a wolf pack here if a few other uh, former female CEOs step up to the plate. So right. you'll still be the leader of the pack, Betsy. Of well, course. I'm hopeful. <laughs> Absolutely. So, you know, like I, I mentioned earlier, you were one of the pioneers in this space. We saw SPACs coming online last year. Obviously, it's not a brand new phenomenon, but the market has now become so flooded with SPACs. I was joking about my Uber driver, but you're seeing former NFL players, athletes, entertainers, uh, part of sponsorship groups for SPACs. How has the SPAC market changed, whether it's for better or for worse, as a result of this preponderance of, of new SPACs? Yeah, I mean, it. we talk about it as if the SPAC market has changed, but it's really the underlying businesses that have changed. So you have, uh, whether it's esports or on the field sports, if we ever get back to that, uh, you know, that have that are growing significantly. So it would be a natural thing for someone with a real knowledge of the sports area to be doing uh, leading a business venture that required that kind of information. Uh, there are specs that are growing in excuse me, there are businesses that are growing in uh, financial technology, which is my own area, but also in electric vehicles, in other areas. And as I, Anthony said at the very beginning, uh, I feel that, that the SPAC is an opportunity for a company to talk about its future instead of its past. And so if there are many more companies that meet that profile, there'll be many more SPACs because there are many more opportunities. So there's obviously uh, the traditional IPO route, but there's now, you know, this, the SPAC market has grown more robust. You're seeing Coinbase, uh, the leading exchange for digital assets going public via direct listing. And that, uh, according to sources, is already trading at about a $100 billion valuation. Uh, which puts it on par with Goldman Sachs in terms of market cap. What do you think in general, this sort of uh, diversification of paths to public life and just the blurring of public life and, and private companies, is that a healthy phenomenon for markets providing greater access to investors at an earlier stage for companies? Or is it somewhat dangerous uh, given the lack maybe of of information and, and proof of concept for some of these companies for them to be available to public investors? I, I think it is both. Uh, I, I think that it it's healthy in the sense that it allows um, particularly retail investors and you know, retail investing has uh, increased from about 12% to about 22% over the last couple of years. So it, it democratizes investment in these companies and it distinguishes correctly among companies. Not every company is the same. Not every company has the same needs. Often an IPO, whether direct or in, uh, investment bank supported uh, is uh, a branding exercise as I would think it would be for Coinbase or it was for Airbnb. Not every company uh, meets those uh, criteria or has those criteria 
and and needs that kind of branding exercise. Uh, so it allows companies to take a look at themselves, uh, say, what are my needs? How can I best achieve them? And which of these paths suits me best? So last question, I'm curious about your views on the digital asset space, you know, not necessarily whether you're a Bitcoin bull or, or a Bitcoin skeptic, but about the general growth of that sector of the market, you know, it could be characterized as fintech, of course, sort of a disintermediation and decentralization of finance. Do you think digital assets, DeFi, Bitcoin, do you think that is something that maybe is a little bit frothy or do you think that's just we're, we're at the beginning of a brand new era of how finance is run? I think both. I mean, I think that that we are at a uh, remember that that adoption. There, there's another adoption curve, and it's really of people having facility and knowledge and use of the internet and digital sources. So, as more individuals gain that uh, knowledge the access to digital assets is uh, actually much easier. And so the audience for digital assets grows. And whether uh, I'm not advocating that digital assets should be your whole portfolio, but uh, it might be worthwhile to, for uh, some people and certainly for younger people to have in their portfolios some bet that digital assets will in fact uh, become more and more important. Well, fantastic, Betsy. It's been such a pleasure to have you on. Anthony, you have any final words for Betsy before we let her go? No, I, I'm trying to figure out how, how to get hired by her, okay? I, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm sitting here figuring out if I'm doing well in this job interview. John, I mean, that that's what I'm doing, you know. I, I but, think you're doing just fine. Okay, well, well Betsy, <laughs> thank you. We really appreciate the you're time. You're too old for her, Anthony. She's looking for, you know, young fintech type you see, of mind. You see you're what it's like when you're dealing with millennials, Miss Cohen? Do you see what it's like when you deal with these people? You know, I, on a daily I deal basis? with them all day long. I'm often twice or three times as old as the next person in the room. <laughs> I have to put my battle armor on every day, Betsy. But in all seriousness, I think uh, your story, uh, your life story, your uh, odyssey of entrepreneurship, all of these things uh, make you a true role model for so many people. So we're very grateful to you for coming on uh, to Salt Talks and sharing that with us. And I hope we can get you at one of our live events uh, once we're able to do that again. Uh, John and I are working on something in New York City, uh, which uh, will help, you know, we hope in a small way to revitalize the city and so forth. So uh, we'll be in touch with you. Hopefully we can convince you to come. Uh, we do some pretty, pretty fun things when there's no pandemics around. You bet. Okay. Thank you. Thank, thank you Thanks again. Thanks for be the opportunity. Be safe. Great to have you. Uh, thanks again to Betsy Z. Cohen for joining us today on Salt Talks. And thank you, uh, everybody who tuned in to today's Salt Talk, uh, talking about this exploding SPAC market of which Betsy uh, has been at the forefront of that. Just a reminder, if you missed any part of today's talk or any of our previous talks, you can access them on our website at salt.org backslash talks or on our YouTube channel, which is titled Salt Tube. Uh, we're also on social media. On Twitter is where we're most most active at Salt Conference. 
but we're also on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram as well. So please follow us there and please spread the word uh, about these SALT Talks. We love educating a, an even wider audience. But on behalf of the entire SALT team, this is John Darcy signing off for today. We hope to see you back here soon.